Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. All right, welcome everybody to this JI seminar. Today we have got Adele Webb joining us, who's an adjunct research fellow with us at, um, at GAI. Completed her PhD not that long ago at the University of Sydney and has a book coming out. Is it still coming out next year? Uh, December. It's, uh, oh, okay, this year. Likely, yeah. But they'll put a 2022 date on it. On the Philippines' journey to democratic ambivalence and has written a bit on this concept of democratic ambivalence in the context of, of the Philippines. Uh, I think it's going to be talking about that today. So now Adele's worked in various different places in Heidelberg and Sydney and so on. And has a kind of a background in not just in academia but also in development and uh, in the NGO sector as well. So, Adele, you've got about up to 40 minutes or so, so um, over to you. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. It's very nice to be in the room in person. It's an experience I haven't had for a long time, so so thank you. And thank you to Ian and to Megan and now Jenny for organising the seminar. Um, it's a great honour to be part of GAI, and it's a, I'm really pleased to be able to present a bit of my research here today, which, as the title suggests, is really a historical study of the Philippines' journey with democracy. Now, just by way of introduction, the Philippines is often bemusedly referred to as the land of mind-bending paradoxes. It is a land where change and continuity just seem to go hand in hand. So it was the first in Asia to birth a modern nationalist movement. But more than one and a quarter centuries later, the nationalist movement and Philippine nationalism remains deeply unresolved. It was a colony of, as a colony of Spain um, since the 16th century. It became a regional economic powerhouse in the 19th century and into the 20th. But in the last 50 years, it's better known as the sick man of Asia. It has some of the worst levels of inequality, of corruption and mismanagement, economic mismanagement in the region. It is, as you would know, a country that has been caught up in international politics for five centuries, repeatedly caught between rival empires and subject to iterations of imperial rule from the Spanish, the Americans and then the Japanese. And today, of course, the Philippines is in a delicate dance with Chinese authorities over maritime space and territories in the South China, West Philippine Sea. I began this research about eight years ago and I was dissatisfied and, and irritated, to be honest, by the pejorative language that was so often used to describe in the, in the democracy literature to characterise the trajectory of Philippine politics. Because not only did it seem to me, having spent a lot of time there, far removed from the lived experience, but it came from a place of denialism, it seemed to me, about the fact the Philippine story was not simply an aberration in the narrative of liberal democracy's global progress or global advance, it has long been my hunch that the value of the Philippine story is underplayed and that the commonly dismissive framing used to deny, to detail its failures, whether they be in its ability to consolidate democracy or in, to sustain economic development, preclude us from seeing the Philippines as somewhat of a looking glass. What is more, it really was striking to me that most studies of contemporary Philippine politics presented what Anne Stoller brilliantly terms a historically truncated optic constricting both the temporal and geopolitical view of how politics of today has emerged. So my interest has principally been in what the Philippine story tells us about the fate of global liberal democracy, in particular the indigenisation of democratic politics in a world where all the talk seems to be about universal or global democratic values. It is also a world, like it or not, still preoccupied with a modernist narrative of middle-class-led development convinced that a global middle class with its innate love for all things democratic and emancipatory 
is the foundation for widespread economic prosperity, political stability and social development. In recent times, however, rather than democracy's safeguard, the middle class globally has found itself at the centre of debates about democratic backsliding. A disenchantment with democracy registered perhaps most strikingly in the success of authoritarian populist figures, the likes of Trump, Orban, Bolsonaro and of course Duterte in the Philippines, all of whom appeared to have captured the allegiance of substantial segments of the middle class despite or perhaps because of a threat they posed to democratic institutions and processes of governance. The rising dissatisfaction of diverse middle classes with their existing democratic institutions and regimes has seen the current political science scholarship on the middle class reach a, a somewhat of an impasse, providing fewer insights into increasingly complex instances of middle class behaviour in both established and emerging democracies. So it's into this discussion that my research enters. Because few middle classes have failed to emulate the predictions of modernisation theory as dramatically as in the Philippines, they seem, as Joshua Kalancic argued recently in his book on democratic backsliding in the developing world, the prime example of a middle class in revolt against democratic rule. Since the days of intense optimism following the 1986 people power overthrow of Marcos, the roller coaster of middle class support for democracy is testimony to Kalancic and others that the Philippine middle class can no longer be taken for granted as a force for democratic change. The May 2016 election of self-professing strongman Rodrigo Duterte with the highest levels of support from middle and upper classes seemed lucid evidence that the middle class themselves, steeply disillusioned by the pace of change, had turned their backs on the democratic ideal. But it's not as simple as Kalancic makes out, because a closer look will tell you that despite the fact it was the middle classes who voted overwhelmingly to elect Duterte's disciplinary government, these voters are neither wholly for democracy nor wholly against it. The normative framework we use for analysing middle class politics forces us to see it through this binary, framing the middle class as either the harbingers of our democratic future or the misbehaving inhibitors of democratic process. It is a dichotomy applied to the middle class that is as old as Marx and it still reigns today. But what this research focuses on is an empirical reality that this framework does not accommodate. The book is essentially the story of a love-hate relationship between the Philippine middle class with democratic politics. So the concept at the centre of the book, which I'll talk briefly about before moving on to specifics of the Philippine story, is the concept of democratic ambivalence. I define democratic ambivalence as the simultaneous and sustained holding of oppositional feelings about democracy. It describes the situation where individuals or indeed publics are neither singularly committed to democracy nor singularly in favour of non-democratic politics. Though regularly confused with disinterest, apathy or indifference, all of which imply inaction, ambivalence is a much more complex and spirited idea. It refers to the maintenance of oppositional attitudes or feelings. It suggests that such oppositional attitudes are not only simultaneous and inseparable, but also durable. Democratic ambivalence, it follows, implies that democratic dispositions can be and often are durably inhabited by forces that simultaneously work for and against democracy. But of course the notion of ambivalence in relation to democracy is contentious. As I mentioned earlier, most of the existing research relies on the normative framework or the normative assumption that citizens and middle class citizens in particular 
take a journey toward unequivocal commitment to democracy. Those with inconsistent or irregular political beliefs are derided as ignorant, confused and a danger to themselves and their regime, their views considered outside the democratic pale. But these interpretations, I argue, are more a product of the theoretical straitjacket in which we place the middle class political subjectivity and of the limitations in the methodologies we use to understand middle class attitudes to democracy than they are a reflection of reality. I make the case in the book that rather than a pathology of democracy, democratic ambivalence is an inevitable feature of democratic life. More than that, I argue that democracy and ambivalence are strange bedfellows and that ambivalence needs to be accommodated into normative theories of how democracy works. I'll revisit these more abstract ideas at the end of the presentation and perhaps we can talk about them in discussion time. Um, but for now, I want to turn to the Philippine story. So we don't have to look far to see ambivalence at play in the Philippines. In the most recent wave of the World Values Survey 2019, 66% of university-educated respondents expressed simultaneous support for a democratic political system as preferable and for a strong leader who does not have to bother with Congress and elections. As the table shows the figures in bold, over the past quarter of a century since the World Values Survey began collecting data in the Philippines, more than 50% of university-educated Filipinos have expressed ambivalent views when it comes to democratic governance. Sorry, can you walk us through the chart just yeah. a little bit more? So uh, on the, the left axis, democratic political system, yes. how do we end up in the, in the bottom right? So the bottom right is, that, so for 1996, for example, 56% of university-educated respondents said that they agreed or strongly agreed that a strong leader, a democratic political system, is preferable. And at the same time, those 56% of people said that a strong leader who does not have to bother with Congress and elections is also preferable. So they have the same number every time, 56%, 66%? In, so in 1996, the overlap between those who said agree or strongly agree to both those things was there was 56% of people who, who okay. had both of those values okay. at the same time. The next survey was 50%. And interestingly, now in 2019, it's higher than it's ever been. So this ambivalence is really at its height. Thanks. No worries. Now, this level of ambivalence holds across social classes, all social classes in the Philippines. But the fact that it's strongly present in this subset of highly educated respondents runs against what the orthodox democratization literature would expect us to find, that the higher someone's socioeconomic status, the more likely they are to adopt emancipatory values, which in turn translates into an uncompromised demand for democracy. So the key question is why middle-class Filipinos in large numbers attach high value to democracy, while at the same time failing to denunciate all forms of authoritarian governance. At the heart of the book and the heart of the research is the claim that democracy in the Philippines has been and continues to be lived in it by the middle class in an ambivalent way. That a synchronous saying of yes and no to democratic politics is one of the defining features of the middle class's democratic journey. That carried within a middle class demand for democracy has been and remains a coexisting desire for equality and freedom on the one hand and an inclination toward hierarchy and restraint on the other. So when I began interviews with middle-class respondents in June 2015, Rodrigo Duterte was little mentioned in national public discourse. But as the months continued and the prospect of his candidacy for president came more likely, it was increasingly common to hear discussions considering his credentials 
as a local politician, his track record in Davao, and what a Duterte presidency might mean for the nation's future. Many people at the moment are abusing their freedom and doing things which are not good, said one of my interviewees. But we have this one politician, Duterte, whose type of leadership is like Marcos, and many people like that. And if you see Davao right now, it is one of the safest places in the Philippines. For me, if that type of leadership is implemented again, I think it's much better. So during the various extended periods I had spent living in Metro Manila, I'd become accustomed to hearing the sentiment that Filipinos are undisciplined and Filipinos don't follow the rules. It seemed especially common when driving. <laughs> but as I began to interview middle-class participants for the study, most of whom were to some extent politically engaged, I didn't expect to hear this same sentiment expressed. There's too much freedom, one of my interviewees chuckled in a throwaway remark. She was a lawyer and a human rights advocate in her mid-30s. Freedom was the way my respondents encapsulated the image of democracy, but freedom, they were telling me, had become the problem. Repeatedly at the heart of beliefs I heard expressed about democracy, I found a contradictory adage. The Philippines is a freedom-loving country, but in the Philippines, freedom needs restraint. Or to paraphrase the sentiment another way, democracy is good, but too much democracy can be dangerous in the Philippines. Freedom may well be the ideal value of democracy, my respondents seem to be saying, but being free doesn't yet work in the Philippines. And if the country is going to transform itself, freedom needs to be restrained or at least closely supervised until the population, both ordinary citizens and the political class, learn how it should be responsibly discharged. This is not a contemporary authoritarian turn, followed by what some people have called people power fatigue, nor is it lingering authoritarian nostalgia left over from the Marcos era, as it predates that too. From as far back as the 1940s, a perceived need for discipline has shaped middle-class perceptions of what was a legitimate exercise of democratic power, in particular the type of leadership that was deemed necessary. So the second claim I make in the book is that the source of this double-sided response to democracy can be traced back to the conditions of duress under which colonial democracy was introduced at the turn of the last century that a protracted and deep-seated ambivalence toward democracy is a striking, yet to date unacknowledged legacy of the half-century of America's democratic tutelage in the Philippines. While more than three centuries of Spanish colonialism had left indelible marks on Philippine populations and society, the legacies of the Spanish period cannot explain recent Philippine political history. For this, I argue, we need to look at the American era and in particular to the legacy of defamations of personhood used to justify the democracy by conquest paradox. The book is divided into three parts, and the chapters construct a broadly temporal genealogy of middle-class ambivalence, starting in the last decades of the 19th century, when the economic, social and technological innovations underway in the late Spanish Philippines had precipitated not only structural changes, including new intersocietal cleavages based on class, but a period of civic flourishing. At the centre of this transformation was a new middle-class intelligentsia, known as the Ilustrados, and an embryonic petit bourgeoisie, both positioned between the arbitrary authority of the Spanish and the exploitation of the masses. Recent historical works of the late 19th century period confirmed the important political and ideational role played by members of a nascent middle class during these revolutionary times. And these findings are crucial as they suggest that the starting point for studying the consciousness of middle class lies much earlier than existing studies on the Philippines suggest. 
The Philippine Revolution against Spain, begun in 1898, had all but forced Spanish authorities from the islands, bar a fleet of ships in Manila Bay. Yet the independence movement was interrupted and ultimately quashed by the entry of American forces, beginning a new era of colonialism that lasted until the end of the Second World War. Building on existing critical American studies, the first part of the book brings to light the nature of the US-Philippine encounter beyond a territorial intervention and a colonial occupation as an exercise of implicit domination, characterised by a complex of democratic idealism and brutalising means. It is the fundamentally contradictory nature of this polysemic empire and the cacophony of rhetorical alibis used to establish its position of authority that the first part of the book tries to bring to the fore. It details the way the violence and subjugation that underwrote US colonial policy was sustained by a deeply contradictory logic by which American officials claimed that the protection of Filipino liberties necessitated the indefinite denial of their liberty. Colonial representations rendering Filipinos as savages in need of guidance, tutoring and uplifting legitimised the denial of their agency. At the same time, this very denial of agency presupposed America's mandate to act. It made it possible, even necessary, to ignore, silence or forcefully repress Filipino attempts to exercise agency and framed all such policy decisions and practices as acts of deliverance and salvation. Compliance with colonial structures of power, however subjugating and violent, became equated with the behaviour required of the good student of democracy. To demonstrate a readiness for self-government was to accept discipline and domination. Daring to question the situation or advocating independence subjected Filipinos to accusations of being anything from mischievous, obnoxious and ungrateful to bandits, rebels and conspirators or simply too ignorant to comprehend what was in their best interests. So having set out the Orientalism and epistemic violence embedded within the American imperial architecture, the second part of the book turns to the Philippine experience of the colonial democracy paradox from the late 19th century to the early 1950s. Rather than subsume decades of history into a simple narrative of middle-class integration and collaboration with the American colonial regime, I demonstrate the way that the middle-class response was far from a straightforward story of passive reception and reproduction of elite frames. The first chapter in this part amplifies the voices of middle-class actors as early as 1910 in what can only be described as open and candid middle-class rejections of United States sanctimonious posturing in professing to teach Filipinos about democracy. Far from simple quiescence, these bourgeois actors asserted strong criticism of specific policies being introduced under the auspices of democratic tutelage. They challenged the contradictions and anomalies they saw around them and were unwilling to concede to the defamation of Filipino subjectivity implicit in the American colonial project. By the 1920s, however, when for most the memory of the Philippine-American War had significantly faded, the relationship of the Philippine middle class to its coloniser took on a new shape. The growing middle class, many of whom were employed in various facets of the colonial bureaucracy, became the primary beneficiaries of an English-language colonial education system, one goal of which was to end the intensive Americanization of its Philippine students. And as the corruption and chicanery of the Philippine political elite increased, as they manipulated the constraints of participation in the colonial system to their own advantage. The culprit became more difficult to identify. Was the United States to blame for the Philippines' lack of independence, or was it the local elite that appeared the chief? Was it the immorality of the political class? Through an imported American framework, it was the local elite that appeared the chief concern. 
given the central message that democratic freedoms were conditional upon the performance of a dutiful citizenship and moral probity. Under the surface, however, there still ran an undercurrent of resentment to American sovereignty, which from time to time erupted in indignation, movements of nationalist spirit and acts of refusing to abide with colonial subjugation. The response to abuses of power by local political elites revealed the complex position in which middle-class citizens found themselves, constrained by the very colonial order that nourished the democratic aspirations. The Philippine political class well and truly adapted to this situation, becoming masters of double talk. By the 1930s, the rhetorical practices of the Philippine elite had come to mirror the strategies of colonial governance. The use of the imperial tools of exemption and exception, by which sections of the population are differentiated from the rest, defined as exempt from democratic principles, making way for the creation of spaces in which the use of exceptional power is legitimate. The book then moves on to focus on the early independence period, and it demonstrates the way that the post-colonial Philippine society continued to negotiate the moral and political entanglements of the colonial era. I do this principally through a close reading of the discourse in the Philippine Free Press news magazine over a five-year period from January 1946 to December 1950. The Free Press was the country's most prominent English-language weekly newspaper with a national and predominantly middle-class readership. Employing a discursive practices approach borrowed from Roxanne Lynn Dotty's work in Critical IR, the analysis uncovers an internalisation of the constraints of the colonial order, not only through the reification of an asymmetrical relationship between the United States and the Philippines, but through the continued nurturing of a deep sense of anxiety and self-doubt. So, for example, this table shows a small representative sample of the descriptive characteristics I extracted from texts in the paper that were attributed to the American and Filipino subjects. The descriptors hang together in a clear way, suggesting a coherence and a shared logic that formed the dominant public discourse at the time. What is more, this coherence extends across both the staff authored cover stories and those letters, <coughs> friends, essays, etc., that were reprinted and but submitted by the public. Or consider this cartoon on the front page of the paper to commemorate the first anniversary of the grant of independence in July 1947, which reinforces the metaphor of the relationship as that between a parent and child. The caption to the cartoon read, and what now, little man, going it alone, legs a bit shaky and steps a bit uncertain, but getting along, head in the right direction and hand tightly gripping the flag. The deeper the political crisis that emerged in the country during these early years of post-independence, the more it seemed to reflect not only on the innately corrupt character of Philippine politicians, but on the foolishness of Filipino voters, a narrative that continued to reinforce the colonial construction of the inferior Filipino subject incapable of self-government. Every report of government wrongdoing was experienced as a defamation of the Filipino people and a loss of esteem not only in the eyes of Americans, but the whole world. Our national soul, wrote a journalist at the time, can only be as good as that of our citizenry, in the same way that our government can only be as good as the people make it. Bitter as the truth may be, our national soul and our government are floundering in the moral bankruptcy. This tragedy is our people's own doing. This imaginary manifested itself in material politics. Ultimately, by 1950, the public's growing loss of faith in democracy would allow a renewed period of American intervention, including a military-led counterinsurgency against peasant uprisings. When US officials wanted to replace the failing presidency of Carino, 
with their chosen candidate, Ramon Magsaysay. They thought it would require acting by SLU through their CIA operatives, but in fact they didn't need to worry about concealment at all. In 1950, the front page of the Free Press reflected on the prospect of renewed intervention and the complaints from some quarters about strings attached. The Philippines is a sick man, it said, anemic, emaciated and enfeebled, in urgent need of a blood transfusion. Our good, seemingly ever-accommodating Uncle Sam has again demonstrated his genuinely altruistic spirit by sharing what may be called his life's blood to save the prostate one. But Uncle Sam reserves to himself the right to say who shall superintend or perform the transfer operation. The third and final part of the book seeks to reframe the events of the contemporary Philippines from the 1960s until the present through the lens of the past. It argues that the ambivalence embedded in the middle class democratic imaginary helps to make sense of a period marked by striking paradoxes and oscillations towards and away from democratic politics. First, this means exploring the pursuit of freedom and a fulfilment of democratic promises in the post-colonial context made imperative the need for a revolutionary break from the past. And yet, how this desire for metamorphosis carried within it opposing impulses, an anti-imperialism that demanded dignity and autonomy. Along with the continuing anxiety and doubt about the capacity of democracy to transform society in any meaningful way and about the capacity of the Filipino subject itself. Most striking, of course, was the culmination of this ambivalent sentiment in the broad middle-class support, or at least acquiescence, to Ferdinand Marcos's assumption of total power. Marcos's legitimacy was helped, no doubt, by the fact that the early 1970s were boom years for the export of Philippine commodities, but penetrating more deeply was the way the president played on lingering frustrations and anxieties that nurtured middle-class ambivalence. The democratic impasse in the country seemed terminal. So impenetrable has become the oligarchic political state that governments of the day seemed unable or unwilling to absorb the democratic demands of citizens. The resulting accumulation of unfulfilled aspirations meant that the only hope for change, it seemed, was through radical measures. What is more, it wasn't only the chronic misbehaviour of the political elite, but the sense of crime, lawlessness and disorder, including the increasing revolt of Marcos's opponents, once again inflamed anxiety among a broad middle class about the Filipinos' innate propensity for vice and the capacity of Philippine citizens to behave in a way befitting of a democracy. Marcos, people believed, was the strong hand of discipline needed to bring things to order. His propaganda promised to restore the once grand and dignified Filipino subject who had been compromised by a colonial past, replacing the sick old society with a new one. In September 1972, having jailed his rivals, key opponents and critics in the media, including the editors of the Free Press newspaper, Marcos made the proclamation of martial law, saying it was being done to protect the Philippines and our democracy. Marcos claimed to be resolving the colonial condition by imposing the very constraints that were central to it. It was a governing logic based on arbitrary power imposed in the name of democracy, a twisted logic the country knew all too well from its history. The only democratic aspirations acceptable were those quiescent to the regime. Now, if this is beginning to sound familiar to those versed in recent dynamics, that is because Duterte has played a very similar card. With a nationalist populism that views the Philippine nation and people with dignity and esteem, that acknowledges the failures of democratic politics to transform society, and that promises to impose a strong hand to keep the wayward Philippine subject, the one believed innately prone to vice, 
on the straight and narrow. But of course, in jumping from 1970 to 2016, we've missed a fundamental episode in Philippine political history, almost certainly the most cited one when it comes to talk of democracy, and that's the people power protests of 1986 that forced Marcos and his family to flee the country. That the Philippines was not captive to the same enduring authoritarianism as many of its regional neighbours was one of the most striking lessons of this era. For ambivalence has two sides, it is by definition Janus faced. And the same ambivalence about democracy that had led broad sections of the middle class to support or acquiesce to Marcos's exceptional powers was at the root of their determination just over a decade later to delimit his regime's anti-democratic politics. Much meaning has been imputed on the events of February 1986. Democratisation discourses from outside heralded it as a tangible expression of the third wave sweeping the developing world. Or in the language of regime transition, this was the moment the Philippines moved from an authoritarian system of governance to a democratic one. Yet these teleological discourses failed to understand the complexity of the moment. That it was embedded in a long history that was defined by, not by its singular coherence, but by its oscillations towards and away from democracy. And the argument I make in the final chapter of the book is that the EDSA revolution itself and the people power trope that emerged from it had and continues to have such resonance and political efficacy, not because it signalled the end of democratic ambivalence, but because it accommodated and it encompassed it. On the one hand, it's a symbolised liberation of the nation from indignity of suffering under oppressive power. Crowded together on the street, people repeatedly sang together Bayan Ko, My Country, a song that calls for the liberation of an oppressed homeland. Marcos had become the cause of collective suffering from which the Philippines ultimately needed to be delivered. But alongside this theme of national redemption, redemption was the theme of the inferior, the redemption of the inferior Filipino subject. The humiliating image of the Filipino subject of dubious democratic character and prone to vice had been displaced by the new image of a righteous people against a corrupt dictatorial regime, of course spearheaded by an enlightened middle class leadership. But viewing events through the frame of morality failed to resolve the anxiety about the Philippines' susceptibility to vice. To the contrary, it made way for the proposition that the dark past of the Marcos years was the result of the Philippine subject's moral ineptitude and that failures to come were also. After Edsa, Cory Aquino, one of my interviewees, explained, they tried to restore freedom and democracy. Now there's too much freedom. Sad to say, said another, a lawyer in his early 40s, we don't have that moral compass yet. We don't have that strict freedom in our hearts. As for the liberation of the nation, the years and decades following would demonstrate that the image of the damaged colonial subject of history remains incendiary. The struggle for true independence and true autonomy continued, such that in 2016, when Duterte infamously cursed Obama and told him to mind his own business regarding human rights, though deemed bad behaviour by the rest of the world, at home, Duterte's subversiveness had great appeal. The more his erratic and undisciplined behaviour drew the disapproval of an international crowd, the more compelling to me was his leadership. Why? Because he embodied the scrutinised Philippine native subject of history, subordinated and looked down upon by the foreign outsider. In standing up for the people, he signified a refusal to continue the indignity of the past. Let me bring this to a conclusion, and let me return a little bit to this concept of ambivalence. At a glance, it may seem to the observer that accepting Ambivalence as a companion of democracy is dangerous, opening the way to anti-democratic outcomes. 
but my argument stands at odds with this approach. It is the reckoning and the criticism inherent in ambivalence that confirms its democratic potential. The Philippines story highlights the way ambivalence has enabled citizens to recognise that what was labelled as democracy, whether by a colonial authority or a political elite, was in fact a lullaby. It has enabled citizens to recognise that the gap between the promise and the performance of democracy is vast, and that silence to this fact only serves the interests of those who would continue to paper over it. The democratic ambivalence that was exercised by broad sections of the middle class in the election of Duterte reflects an enlivening of political esteem and efficacy among frustrated citizens. Citizens who could choose to exit the race altogether and give up on their democratic dreams, but who instead attempted to reclaim the public sphere away from the circus of electoral politics, which not only inoculates the worst of hypocrites, but fails to give voice to unutterable miseries. There is no doubt, as we have seen in the case of Duterte and as we saw historically with Marcos, that opponents of democracy will take advantage of ambivalence in order to flex their muscles. Under the current administration, ambivalence has seen many within the middle class acquiesce to or, and even endorse widespread punitive programs and brutal denials of liberty. But Duterte should beware the tale of ambivalence, for it does not tolerate totalising ideologies indefinitely. My hope is that in telling the Philippines story will serve to bridge to broader considerations about the relevance of the democratic ambivalence thesis in other parts of the world. For ambivalence about democracy in the Philippines may be extreme, but it's not exceptional. In an age of geographically vast disenchantment with democracy, the Philippines journey teaches us lessons of global importance. That ambivalence is not a flaw in democracy, it is an inevitable and necessary feature of democratic life. What is more, ambivalence serves as a safeguard, for ambivalence guards against the type of certainty that is anathema to democracy. It denatures power by reminding citizens of the temporality of existing regimes, and it provokes the kind of watchfulness and constant contemplation that a living democracy functionally requires. To disparage or ignore ambivalence is to disfigure democracy, to, to borrow a term from Nadia Urbanati. For not only does this remove from people the agency and volition enshrined in democratic politics, it denies the fact that democracy is and will always be both an aspirational ideal and a messy reality that inevitably triggers dissatisfaction and disappointments as much as it triggers trust, belief and hope. Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.